Thank you. Good morning. I'm feeling light on my feet. I've been on this uh, diet. I'm into it about a week now. I've got about another four days to go. I mean, it's very intense. I eat something like space food or maybe adult baby food or something, you know, pills and powders and different things. But um, since Shelly isn't here, <clears throat> last night after she went to bed, <laughs> I have to get this out. Uh, I had three lemon drops. And it took me about, I mean, I just savored them for about, I think it ran about two and a half hours. I just, <laughs> and it, it was, you know, I just cut that, that part of the, of the diet a little short, you know. So it wasn't too bad. But, uh, but anyway, if I look a little gaunt or something, I've just lost about 12 pounds. So that's why. I'm fine. I'm fine. Nothing, nothing going on. Well, this morning, uh, we're in Acts chapter 21 as we continue our series on becoming the church, stories of the first Jesus people. We're going to be in verses 15 through 26. There's a lot packed in here. So I want us to read it together. I hope you have your Bible so you can read with me and keep it open because you'll want to look at a few of these verses and some others. <clears throat> and after these days, we got ready and started on our way to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And when we'd come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. And they've been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote 
having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day purifying himself among with them, along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Well, who hasn't had a perfect plan go wrong? And Paul, I don't know if it was a perfect plan, but he did have a plan. Something I haven't told you, and something that Luke hasn't told us to this point, is the reason Paul was going to Jerusalem. He had a plan all, the, all along. And that plan involved a collection. And by collection, I mean that he was asking believers in the Gentile Jewish churches that he had planted as a missionary. He was asking them to give gifts of, of financial help, to give money that Paul could go to Jerusalem and take this gift of love, this tremendous love gift to the church at Jerusalem to help meet the needs of the poor and those who needed help there. That was his plan. And what's amazing is we don't usually notice it. We kind of read right over it. It's mentioned in all of his major letters. It's mentioned in, especially in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and it's mentioned prominently in Romans. And what's striking about that is you may recall that after he left Ephesus, he made a circle, so to speak, through Macedonia, and those are churches that we're familiar with if we're familiar with our New Testament, the Thessalonians, the Philippians, we remember the mention of the Bereans. And then he went on to Achaia, which is that area of what we call Greece. And there were the Corinthians, for example. And it was in that very circuit, after he left Ephesus to visit those churches, that he wrote Romans and he wrote 2 Corinthians. And while he was in Ephesus, he wrote 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians. And he mentions prominently the collection. Why the collection? Where did this idea come from? Well, you remember back in chapter 15, they had kind of a powwow, a big powwow, because Cornelius had become a Christian. You remember how Peter stood up for the validity of his conversion and that he was just like any of the rest of us, even though he was a Gentile. His faith was bona fide. It was the real deal. And what God did in him was the real deal. And there was no reason to count him as a second-class citizen. He was a full-fledged believer in Jesus Christ. And they were all on board with this mission that later of Paul. But there was something that they mentioned, and Paul brings it out in Galatians chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. And Paul says, we, Barnabas and I, received the right hand of fellowship from the pillars of the church, the church in Jerusalem. That's James, Peter, and John. 
That's the handshake of blessing. That's the handshake of equality. And then Paul says, and they didn't ask anything of us except one thing, to remember the poor. And Paul did. He says, in fact, in verse 10, we were only glad to do that. We were eager to do that. Look at what he writes. And let me just put up these maps for a moment. You can see where Miletus is. We were there just recently when Paul met with the elders of the church of Ephesus, but he had made a circle, and I put it in a green circle. Those are the churches. That's the area. And I'm going to read some excerpts from 2nd I'm going to read first from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Romans, which were written while he was making that tour. And I'm just going to paraphrase some of those things, but you can take down the passages. There are others. But 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4, he says, Now concerning what you wrote about the money to be raised to help God's people in Judea, do what I told the churches in Galatia to do. This had been going on for several years. Each Sunday, put aside some money in proportion to what you've earned and save it up so that there will be no need to collect money when I come. That's what that's referring to. Then, as I said, written while he was visiting the churches in that green circle on the slide projected behind me, this is between leaving Ephesus and then coming to Miletus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul tells the Corinthian churches how the churches in Macedonia, and you need to think Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Bereans, joyfully and sacrificially gave despite their poverty, begging us for the opportunity to help God's people in Judea. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the very next chapter, the first couple of verses, and there's more in these passages, but Paul to them mentions the gift being sent to God's people in Judea and how he boasted of them to the churches in Macedonia. Because a year before they had already pledged and started contributing and saving to help what he says, to help God's people in Judea. And then he says this in Romans chapter 15, verses 25 through 27. He says to the church at Rome, he says, uh, you know, I'm planning to come see you after I take the gifts of the churches in Macedonia and Achaia in order to help the poor among God's people in Jerusalem. And then in verse 27 he says this, they were pleased that is, the churches in that circle. They were pleased to do this. And indeed, they're not only pleased, they're indebted. They're indebted to the Jerusalem saints because he says, if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual blessings, they are obligated to minister to their material needs. And what's striking to me, and I just, I ran across this just yesterday. You remember the uh, prophecy of Agabus that there was going to be famines. Well, I'm reading this book by Bruce Winter called After Paul Left Corinth. And he produces all this evidence to show how many famines were in this very area. There was a profound famine in 51 when Paul was there. 
And these people in the midst of this famine, that's why Paul says, even out of their need and their poverty, they give. None of this has been mentioned in Acts. But in chapter 24, verse 17, mark that, in chapter 24 of Acts, verse 17, we're going to jump ahead. We have that privilege. We can look into the future. (laughs) Paul is standing before the governor, the Roman governor, overseeing all of Judea. He is on trial for his life. And the governor says, you know what, how did this all begin? What are you doing here? And Paul answers the government, I mean the governor, Felix, and he says, I came to Jerusalem to bring gifts for the poor and to present offerings. That was his purpose. That was his great plan. And it wasn't just to meet a physical need. It was a love offering, if you will, in the truest sense of the word because Paul wanted this offering to demonstrate the oneness that we have in Jesus Christ. That there is no division between Jew or Gentile. That we are one new man. In fact, we are in fact a new humanity, a new human race. That's his objection. That's his objective. To demonstrate our oneness in Jesus Christ. That these Gentile believers are brothers and sisters in Christ who care about you because Jesus has broken down the dividing wall, which is something he wrote about in Ephesians chapter 2. Making the two one. Now, look at, look at Acts 21 for a second, because when you look at verses 15, 16, and 17, and you, here's where this little, uh, over here on the right, this uh, little, little square showing Jerusalem. He goes from Caesarea, you see Caesarea there, and he goes up to Jerusalem. And some of the brothers from Caesarea go with him, right? And then he says, they're going to go to the house of Nason. Who is from Cyprus? It doesn't mean he's in Cyprus. He's from Cyprus. He's one of the he's one of the first line believers in Jesus Christ. He's probably a Greek speaking Jew. And it is there in Jerusalem at his house that he that Paul and his companions are warmly welcomed. But the next day in verse 18. The next day in verse 18, he goes to see James, and it's a bit of a different story. And what happens in verse 18? Paul says, you know, I mean, Paul tells them about his mission. He tells them about all the things that God has been doing in all of these areas. And the people coming to Christ. And the grace of God just breaking out. And it says, they glorified or they praised God. And then, it's like a big, yeah, but. Yeah, but. 
There are, and it's literally, it says in most translations, thousands, but it is literally ten thousands. He asks, he says, how many ten thousands of Jewish people have believed and are zealous for the law? There is the dividing issue. That's the deal breaker. And then he goes on to say in the next verse, they've been in, he says, at first he says, what are we to do? And then they say, do what we tell you. But he tells them first, they tell him first that these millions, these, these pardon me, tens of thousands, these tens of thousands who have believed and are zealous of the, jo- the law, they've been informed that Paul advocates turning away from Moses in these churches, in these areas where he's a missionary. He's been out on the mission field for Jesus Christ. And he's telling them to turn away from Moses, telling the parents, stop circumcising your kids, and you don't have to follow our customs. Well, basically, Paul's being accused of being anti-Jewish because those are the hallmarks of being a Jew. That's the identity of a Jew that's being summarized there in that verse. Paul is anti-Jewish. It's like he's anti-American. And they say, we've got a plan. There are four guys that have taken a vow and... uh, We want you to join them and pay their expenses. And what I want us to see in this, and we have to do a little probable thinking. And I think, I think it's where when we try to identify with Paul a little bit, that's why I spent so much time trying to help you appreciate what that gift was all about. Think of the energy. Think of the time. Think of the aspiration. Think of the hope. This was a a plan to unite the church, to bring people together as they really are in Christ. And he gets there and he starts to tell them about what God's been doing. And it gets a big, yeah, but. Yeah, but. And it's almost like one-upmanship, you know. Yeah, I hurt my toe. Yeah, well, I hurt my arm. <laughs> I got a new car. I got a really big car, and it's even newer. What I want us to appreciate is that if we can't control the situation We can still serve the cause of Christ. And we may have to put their problem above our own. And that's what Paul does. That's the profound thing. 
to serve the cause of Jesus Christ. He had a hope that drove him there, and he wasn't going to abandon that just because in many ways it was dashed. It was a vital, it was a, it was a real and valuable purpose. We may have to put their problem above our own. I've already kind of illustrated the problem. It, it reminded me back in, uh, in 75, 6, and 7, uh, I was an intern at First Baptist Church in Modesto. Now it's called Cross Point. And every week for three years, I drove to Turlock, the hometown of Colin Kaepernick, quarterback of the 49ers, just so you can get a geographical connection there. And it was there that I spoke every Sunday at St. John's United Presbyterian Assyrian Church. St. John's United Presbyterian Assyrian Church. And they spoke Farsi. And uh, they had come from all over, but generally from Iran, especially when the Shah was deposed back in the 70s. And now they were here. And they had a, a pastor who spoke to them in their native tongue. But they had a small crowd of people that were more Americanized. Some were children of Assyrians who had migrated, you know, and been born here. But, uh, and I spoke to that little crowd every Sunday for three years. We, we tried to really become a part of the church, and we enjoyed that um, I would sing in the choir, and it was kind of a funny thing, you know, because they have all these cultural things, like in the choir, when the, when the offering plate comes through the choir, um, they only put in one dollar, because they want to make sure that, it, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, kind of a thing, that was their way, that was in their culture, they'd only put in one dollar, they would give in some other way, but they, they, since they were visible up there, they didn't want people to see anybody giving more. But I remember one time a guy only had a five and he was making change right there up because he had to only put in one dollar, you know. Uh, the food was great and uh, really great. And the people were really loving. And when they celebrated their 50th anniversary, they asked me to take their picture with the pastor right by their 50th, you know, golden anniversary. And I said, no, I, in fact, you'll see me in that picture standing in the back. They, you can still see me. I'm about a head above everybody else. But I, I just felt like, look, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I won't be here forever. And someday you're going to look back on your golden anniversary and people are going to say, who's that guy? I looked the part. I had the big mustache and everything, but... But here's the thing, I often thought, what, what, what's going to happen to this church? At what point will they have to sacrifice the heart of the gospel in order to maintain their cultural distinctive? Are you listening to me? At what point would they have to give up being from Iran, or being a Syrian for the sake of the gospel? When would they have to turn people away or not welcome people? Maybe not refuse them, but not welcome them. 
not invite them, not reach out to them, because to do so would destroy St. John's United Assyrian Church. And each one of us have those issues. In a small way, we're each a little church, as it were. What will we do for the cause of Christ? The problem then was aggravated by the politics of the day, and I wish I could spend more time to explain this, but things were really heated. This was in 59, in just six years, not even a full six years, War will break out in Judea. If you remember Masada, that's all wrapped up in that. War between Rome and Judea would break out. And the Jews felt like their identity was being destroyed. St. James, I mean St. John's would face a similar conflict at some point. But at this point, Paul put them first in their problem, not his problem. And what was his problem? Well, I'll tell you, I, I, I think Paul is saintly. I, I, I read his letters and they just, he becomes more dear to me all the time. The more I know myself, the more I appreciate what this man said. I know it's inspired, but it's driven by the heart of this man. God has changed his heart. But do you realize still how hard it would be to have your plan blow up? All your expectations. And then not only that, but your character assassinated. And then being asked to do something which was not violating his character. It was to, in fact, reform his reputation, which was false. But I think, look, if we're confused about how Muslims could be riotously insulted by an unflattering cartoon of Muhammad, then we are equally confused about the problem in Jerusalem when Paul was there. And that's why this issue of his reputation was so huge. And he put it above his own. How offended could he have been? I mean, this guy has been through riots in Antioch, stoning in Lystra, beatings in Philippi, more riots in Thessalonica, run out of town in Berea, court cases and anti-Jewish violence in, in Corinth, and 25,000 chanting pagans in Ephesus. And he comes there and he gets a yeah, but. And he had the heart to understand what these Christian Jews were facing trying to reach out to other Jews with a guy in their midst who had a reputation of being anti-Jewish in their in the minds of the people it's kind of like a missionary to France and guest speaker at an outreach at the Legion Hall when when rumors break out because he's coming from France and he believed to bash American policies favor health care, socialized health care, and Second Amendment rights. It becomes a problem for the people you're trying to reach. Paul must decide to pursue the cause of Christ or split the church. This is the anatomy of a church fight. 
It's really pretty profound. I mean, there's internal politics, rumors, gossip, innuendo, and prejudice. I read a reread actually an article I'd read some months ago by Robert Moeller, How to Split Your Church. Uh, he reported that a church in southern in southern United States no longer exists, due in part to an incident that took place in the church kitchen one Sunday afternoon. He writes, a family new to the church had arrived to take part in their first potluck luncheon. The aroma of tuna casseroles, baked beans, man, this is making me hungry, tater tot dishes wafted through the building. The unsuspecting wife cheerfully brought her red gelatin salad to the kitchen and returned to her family in the fellowship hall. The moment the pastor said amen, hungry churchgoers politely charged for the serving line and the dozens of dishes to sample. Where's our salad, the woman's husband asked innocently. There must be some mistake, she replied. I'll find out what happened. And she reached the ki- and then she went to the kitchen, and as she reached the kitchen door, just in time to witness the queen of the kitchen ladling the last of her salad into the disposal. What are you doing, the newcomer shrieked. That's my salad. And without batting an eye, the woman looked up and said, You're new to this church. You'll soon learn we use only real whipped cream around here, not Cool Whip. She hit the switch. The garbage disposal rumbled and gurgled and sucked the salad down the drain. And that one skirmish started a significant church battle that escalated into all-out war. If you've been around church, that thing happens. It isn't that it doesn't happen, and it shouldn't happen. But we're all here because we need the gospel. But we've got to be responsive to the gospel. We can't leave it at the door. And sometimes it makes, calls us to make some tough calls, and that's what Paul did. Let me just run through Moeller's uh, ten, top ten ways to destroy or uh, split a church. One, focus only on your own desires. I'm going to do this quickly. I had some good stuff in here. But focus only on your own desires. Two, listen to every criticism. You know, a morsel of gossip doesn't have to be true to be destructive. You just have to treat it as true. Proverbs 26.20 says, without wood a fire goes out, without gossip a quarrel dies down. Rumors need oxygen to catch fire. Three, focus on your pastor's weaknesses, not his strengths. I put that one in on my own. (laughs) I didn't. I don't have anything to say about that. Four, speak the truth or practice love, but never combine the two. Five, store grievances for future use. One effective way to cripple a church is to harbor secret resentments against one another. Boy, and that applies here, doesn't it? Where things were circulated about Paul that weren't true. The longer grievances are stored, the more powerful they become. 
Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Six, forgive only those who ask you to and only if they deserve it. Seven, hide your own sin behind harsh attitudes. Eight, use prayer to unite discontented people and spread inappropriate information. Nine, do whatever it takes to win. And ten, remember, you are on a mission for God. Not long ago, this is a true story. I mean, you can look this up. Uh, it's just a couple years back. I read one church fight that eventually ended up in state court. Both sides sued the other to gain title to the building and land. The court refused to hear it and sent it down to a denominational uh, mediator and hearing. And that court, after a lengthy investigation, found that the cause the, the root cause of the dispute began at a potluck over the size of a piece of ham. That's why we don't have potlucks. No, I don't. Get right to the root of the problem. Eliminate potlucks. Uh. Paul had a lot more at stake than a larger piece of ham or Cool Whip. But the cause of Christ is even bigger than his plans. Somebody aptly said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's really true. We may have to set their problem, put their problem above our own. We may have to unite their plan with ours, and that's what Paul did. He took his plan, that plan that they had for him, on as his very own. If somebody said to me, and I know this is partly my upbringing, some of you are so much better at these sorts of things, and I've come a long way, just want you to keep that in mind. But if somebody said to me, do what we tell you. Now, it depends on how they say it, doesn't it? And James probably had a, you know, help me kind of attitude and spirit. But if somebody says, do what we tell you, I mean, that just, them's fighting's words. I just, I just immediately put up my shields and stuff. But it reminded me of something my pastor said when I was very young in Christ. When I was young and sitting in church listening to him bring God's word, he said, if, we, he said, if you have a problem with authority, you have a problem, a bigger problem with the lordship of Jesus Christ. I've pondered that throughout my life, and it has guided me. And I really think, I mean, that's just a contemporary way of saying Paul didn't have a problem with the authority of Jesus Christ. When these authorities, those who in fact were a part of, you know, his spiritual upbringing, when they said, do what we tell you, I don't think he had a problem with that. I think he really accepted their plan as his. I know he didn't have a problem of compromise because he knew that all of those 
things that went into Judaism were, could be filled with deep and precious meaning. And so what he was undertaking was from his heart, but he made it his own. And I think that's really, really important. I believe Paul responded as he did because Paul had a bigger plan, a bigger Lord than himself at that point. And the greatest power I know is exercised in submission to others, and it comes from submission to Jesus Christ. And the third thing I wanted... We already covered two. And third, very quickly, we may have to make their decision our own. Paul made another's decision, his choice. It says, in fact, in verse 26, to the very next day. I mean, he got right on it. I remember Dennis Minnis seeing a cartoon of him, and he's standing, you know, he's in the corner sitting, and he says, he's, you know, I have to sit in the corner, but I'm standing up inside. And some of us do that, but see, there's a disconnect with the Lordship of Jesus Christ right there. That's a legalism. That's the whole law thing, and Paul was not under that law. He was free, and he did this with all of his heart because of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. These weren't his enemies. These were God's people. And sometimes we look at people across the aisle or over there and they, we think of them as our enemies because of some disagreement, because of Cool Whip or a slice of ham or something other trivial thing. And that's where our ego promote is so big that we realize I mean, that should be a big alarm or a red flag that Jesus Christ isn't in the picture at all. He made this decision his. Because the same hope that made him take on that collection and for all of those good people to send that beautiful gift to Jerusalem for the same motive, same hope, he wasn't going to give up on that because his plan took a detour. He was still interested in the oneness of people in Jesus Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. How are you called to put Christian fellowship above your personal beliefs of what should be done? How do missionaries today face a conflict between customs in their home church and freedoms in the mission field? Going to a different culture is really different. Little things that bug people here are not going to necessarily bug them there, and vice versa. Here's what Paul said. I want to close with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Listen carefully to this. For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And it's at the heart of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. 
John Ortberg has a new book, Who Is This Man? Condoleezza Rice wrote the foreword, and she says that this book explores a paradox of our faith. And I quote, that acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a pathway to an easy life, but a call to do hard things if we're to live in the image of the Lord. Will you stand? There are some really profound things in this passage, and I, I really wrestled with it. There's so many ways you could uh, make powerful and important application for our lives. I'm going to trust the Spirit to do that in yours. Maybe He's spoken to your heart this morning. And aside from whatever God may be calling you to do in your own church, Oh, by the way, I wanted to say, I, I don't, we just got to this. I have no axe to grind. I, you, I think you're the most wonderful church in the world, so there's no ham, cool whip issues that I know of, but that's not why I'm speaking on this. But there may be something I'm not aware of, only you're aware of it, that God's challenging you to say, let me be Lord in this situation. Really trust me. Take flight with me. Maybe this morning God's speaking to your heart because in the gospel you see the beauty of God's love for you. If you'd like to pray about any of these things, if you would like to come and ask me any questions, I'm going to be joined up here by elders, their wives. We invite you to come if you'd like to pray for us, with us for a friend or for yourself. We invite you to come. I'm going to pray, and as the music uh, plays after I pray, God bless you. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for your Spirit. Thank you for your work in our lives. We have so much to be grateful for. You've done such incredible, miraculous things that we can account. Now, Father, this week show us how we can put you first and others first for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said,